Today's scripture is from the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. I want to say thanks to the bell choir for coming in and uh, performing for us live. A treat to have them here and have them lend their talents here to worship today. Something like 10 years ago, I read a story that has stuck with me ever since. It's a story that comes from a book called The Good and Beautiful God by a man named James Brian Smith, who's a theology professor at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. And Smith tells this story about a day that he took a telephone call from a young man who had heard the professor speak some months previous at a conference. And the voice on the phone, he said, sounded really panicked, really anxious, really worried. The young man said that he could not start his car, which is a weird reason to call a theology professor, right? But the problem was not with the young man's car. The problem was with him. So Dr. Smith relays the conversation like this. The caller said, Dr. Smith, I need to know if what you said about God is true. And Smith answered, what specifically are you referring to? He said, you said that God is entirely good and loving and trustworthy and out for our good. I wrote down every word that you said. Are you sure that I can trust God? And the professor said, yes, I'm certain. Why are you asking? And he said, I haven't been able to drive my car for the past few days. Well, why? Because I'm afraid that I might have some bad or evil or lustful thought in my head, and the next instant I might die in a car crash before I even have time to repent, and that God will send me straight to hell. Smith goes on to say that the young man had been in church every week of his life, listening to a pastor, a preacher, who would beg people to stop sinning before it was too late. This pastor would repeatedly say that God hates sin. God hates sin so much that God would send a person, even a baptized believer, into everlasting punishment for committing a single sin. So serious was sin. And that message had woven itself deeply into this young man's heart, and he was paralyzed with fear. He knew that, that he hadn't stopped sinning completely, so how could he be sure that he had been forgiven every evil thing that he had ever done, especially if he was tragically and suddenly killed? It had brought his life to a complete standstill. I wonder, does that seem like an odd story to you? It's probably a worldview outside of the experience of a lot of United Methodists. We don't dwell very much on God's wrath around here, though God certainly gets angry. We don't reflect very often on the idea of eternal punishment, and that's not what this sermon is about either, so come back another week to hear that one. But I think there is something that we might have in common with this young man in the story. 
I think it's possible that it can cross our minds, even grip our hearts, this question of how do I know that I'm okay with God? How do we know that we are right with God? I mean, God is perfect, and we are not. We fail. Every one of us to live lives that are holy and just and 100% pure. Uh, so how do we know that we're okay now in the eyes of God? And how, we're, how do we know we're going to be okay forever inside God's good graces for eternity? Perhaps you're asking yourself, uh, isn't this what you've been preaching about the last two weeks, Amy? <laughs> about God's amazing and unending grace? I have been. Thank you for remembering. That's exactly right. We're in the middle of this sermon series, considering the grace of God and looking at it through United Methodist lens. And already we've talked about God's prevenient grace, that, that grace that goes before, that grace that precedes even our relationship with God. So, so active and interested is God in a relationship with us. Last week, we talked about justifying grace, like Penny reminded us in her children's sermon, that grace of salvation, that grace of being made right with God. God's justifying grace is a central teaching of the scriptures, a bedrock of our Christian faith. But even with it being so central to our understanding of being a Christian, even with it being the pivot point about Jesus Christ and, and what he did, even with all that, lots and lots and lots of Christian people have found reason to doubt found reason to wonder and worry, am I, am I really saved by grace? Am I really saved? And if I am, then how am I going to know it? Now, let me start out today with the good news, the biblical news. And we find that in lots of places, but today we read it from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He makes pretty clear that our belief, our faith, is our sign and security of salvation. He says, being led by the Spirit of God is what shows that we are God's children. And as children, we cry out to God as a parent. We say, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, you may know, is an Aramaic word for father. It's an informal word. It's a word that a son or daughter might use inside the house to call out to their father. It's, a, it's an intimate word. It's a word of trust. It's a word of belonging. Abba is the word that Jesus used to address God. And it's an Aramaic word, but Paul still uses the word even though he's writing in Greek. But then he adds the Greek word father after that to make sure we know what he's talking about. Paul is saying when we cry out to God, as children would do, when we trust in our loving parent, Paul says that's the Holy Spirit working inside of us, bearing witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, God's children. What does it take to be a child of God? Simply to cry out to God as a loving parent. And if we're children, then we're heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And the, the inheritance that he got through his resurrection is our inheritance too. So for Paul, it's pretty simple. When we cry out to God in trust and belonging, when we let the Holy Spirit move inside of us, we are confirmed as God's children. We are saved by his grace. Anyone who cries out to God as uh, a child to a parent, God will not deny. Now, it's one thing for us to read that in the scriptures, but it's another thing to feel it deeply in our bones, to have confidence in it every day of our lives. Maybe you've never struggled with this kind of question. If so, awesome. 
But there are a lot of people that go around asking, am I really worthy of God's love? Maybe you've never asked yourself, but plenty of others have. Did God really do that for me? Is God really ready to forgive all I've done? Can I be sure, can I be sure that I'm right and good in God's eyes? Maybe you've never struggled with being worthy of God's love, but plenty of other people have, including some really, really religious people, people we would never expect to struggle with this question. Doubts and fears like this haunted Martin Luther until he rediscovered for himself in the scriptures this message that we're saved by grace, not by works. Grace alone was his proclamation, sola gratia. A few hundred years then after Luther delivered his 95 theses and started the Protestant Reformation, a young priest in the Church of England was struggling with this, these exact same kinds of questions. He earnestly wanted to please God. He wanted to live a holy and a pure life. He wanted to be right in God's eyes. But how could he know? How could he know that he was? I'm talking, of course, about John Wesley. Dear John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, John was born into a really serious Christian household. His father, Samuel, was a priest in the Church of England. His mother, Susanna, was a woman of deep faith, and she took it upon herself to make sure her children knew the Lord, knew the Bible, and knew exactly what was expected of them as Christian men and women. John grew up and followed his father into the priesthood. He was ordained, and he was working as a scholar and a tutor in Oxford at Oxford College, and he decided to become a missionary. He took a post in the colony of Georgia. He wanted to try and convert the Native Americans who were there. That didn't go so well. Turns out the Native Americans didn't care at all about his preaching. And among the English settlers to whom he ministered, John also got into some hot water related to a young woman named Sophie Hockey. Some promises were broken, some harsh words were said, and... Her father got so mad at John that he had to leave as soon as possible to go back to England to avoid any more trouble. I have to say, I love it with all my heart that he failed so miserably in Georgia. It just endears him to me even more. Obviously, he bounced back, right? Things went up from there for him. But even without all that trouble in Georgia, John was far from at peace. As he was sailing both to and from America, the ship that Wesley was on encountered terrible storms, and both times he legitimately thought he was going to die. And to his horror, he discovered that he was terrified of dying. Now, being afraid to die might seem like something that's pretty normal to us, but John took it as a sign of lack of faith on his part. To him, this terror that he had about dying, it meant that he didn't really believe in the goodness and the graciousness of God if he was so scared to meet God face to face. I don't think he was paralyzed to the level of that kid who couldn't drive his car, but he was deeply troubled in his spirit. He just didn't feel assured of his own faith, that he could trust his own salvation. So once he was back safely on English soil, John's solution was to try harder, to pray more, to read more, to study more, to try to strengthen and build up this weak faith that he felt like he had. But a friend, a, a member of a church called the Moravians, which was based in Germany, this guy named Peter Bowler, he convinced Wesley that his problem was that he lacked faith altogether, not that he just needed to work harder and try harder to build up a weak faith, 
but he said, we're saved by faith alone, and if we have faith, it will be accompanied by an assurance and freedom from worry and doubt. Now, Wesley wasn't really comforted by this idea. He said, well, if that's true, then I need to stop preaching because of the sorry state of my soul. But Bowler encouraged him. He said, preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. And Methodist pastors ever since have taken comfort in that advice. But as the weeks went on, then Wesley's spiritual crisis, it continued. It just, it it wouldn't lay itself down. And several friends, even his brother, started talking about having these moments of assurance, uh, having a feeling of being certain of the depth of God's grace and the truth of God's salvation. And then one night in late May, 1738, when he was almost 35 years old, John went to a Bible study on the book of Romans. And this is what he wrote about it in his journal later. He said, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Now let's just stop right there and notice that this super religious guy did not want to go to Bible study. (laughs) He didn't want to go, but something pretty amazing happened to him because he went. He said, One was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That night, he got it. Wesley heard for the first time in a new way, in a way that didn't just sit between his ears, but in a way that landed in his heart and in his soul. He got it, that he didn't have to do anything to earn eternal life with God. He got it, that he couldn't be good enough or strong enough or perfect enough. He got it, that he couldn't love well enough or teach wisely enough or succeed big enough to earn God's favor. It had to come to him as a gift, and it was a gift that God was completely willing to give even to him. I felt I did trust in Christ, he said. Christ alone for salvation and assurance. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. Wesley's gift of assurance that night It helped propel him forward into the great work that he would do for the rest of his life. So for us to understand grace from a Wesleyan perspective, we have to tie this idea of justifying grace with the gift of assurance. Wesley believed that assurance was a gift that could be given and would be given to anyone that was open to receive it. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that accompanies God's grace. Now, to us, part of this might seem a little bit obvious here in 21st century America, as, as steeped as we are in the sort of revival moments that Billy Graham used to create. Think about that. At his revivals, he would have the crowd singing, Just As I Am, and hundreds of people would flock to the stage to pray and receive salvation. So we say, of course, God's justifying grace is accompanied by an emotional and a spiritual experience. Of course, it's something that happens beyond our explaining. Of course, we feel it in our hearts and our souls. But in Wesley's day, there wasn't a revival movement like that. There was no Billy Graham. John went on to become the Billy Graham of England of his day, right? For him, 
This was a new experience, and he, he received plenty of criticism for writing and preaching about this idea of receiving assurance like he had on Aldersgate Street. It seems pretty quaint to us today, but what his critics would write was that he was just caught up with enthusiasm. He was too enthusiastic about his faith. Now, of course, we've had exposure to churches that do things like snake handling and speaking in tongues or are literally slain in the spirit where people fall down on the ground because they're so overcome with God's presence. So having a nicely warmed heart doesn't really seem like that big a deal. But it was kind of radical for his time. In 18th century England, it was a big deal to say that we could have a personal, emotional, tangible experience of the Holy Spirit in which God would assure us of God's love and God's grace. And I think that there are still some Christians around who think that faith mostly happens between their ears, and that's just not the fullness of it. Now, as United Methodists, we remember and we celebrate Aldersgate Day, this experience that Wesley had on Aldersgate Street. In fact, there are a lot of churches around named Aldersgate, and every year on May 24th, I see United Methodists, especially preachers on my Facebook feed, retelling the story and giving thanks for God's grace. That, that moment was a big deal for Wesley. But the thing about assurance is, I don't think it's just a one-time thing. A justification, that, that happens once. Once we step over the threshold into the doorway of the household of God, that's it. We're there. It only happens once. But assurance, that can happen again and again. God can continually remind us and reassure us of the grace freely given. God can continually remind us and reassure us that we are children of God, secure in God's house, safe in God's embrace. What I appreciate about the idea of assurance and the story of Wesley's Aldersgate moment is that it reminds us that faith isn't just something that happens in our heads. Faith is not just an interesting set of ideas. Faith is something we hold in our hearts. It's something that affects us on a spiritual level. Our, our relationship with God is not just a set of propositions to which we agree, it's spiritual, which means it's mysterious which means that it's something that goes beyond explaining with words, but it touches down into the deepest parts of ourselves. This week, I want to encourage you to take a moment for spiritual reflection about assurance. It doesn't have to take long, but I do think it needs to be intentional. If you already have a regular time of Bible reading and prayer during the day or during the week, then awesome. Just take a moment to do it then. If you don't have that as a regular practice, reading the Bible and praying to God, take a moment to do it this week, today even, to reflect on your moments of spiritual assurance Sometimes we call those mountaintop moments, or if we want to be real Wesleyan, we call it moments when our hearts are strangely warmed, when you knew the fullness of God and God's love for you, when you felt the security of God's saving grace. And if it's been a little while since you've had a moment like that, or if you've never had a moment like that, then ask God for it today or this week. Ask God to help you know, to trust, to feel with all the confidence possible the depths of God's love, and then be open to what the Holy Spirit will do. Like Paul says, when we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit moves within us, and we are reminded we are God's child. We are loved without end. We are forever safe with God.
Thanks be to God. Amen.